What's up? Hey, Aaron. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. How, what are we chatting about this lovely afternoon? Today's episode is called What Equipment Do You Need to Make Great Art? Or How to Stop Worrying and Just Buy Hasselblad X2D? <laughs> what an interesting topic. I mean, 8200 bucks the camera body by itself and you can make great photos. Well, plus like five grand for a lens, right? I'm sure we're going to get into it. This is Bit Depth. I'm Aaron. I'm Chris. Stay with us. Okay, Aaron, why don't you lead us off here? What do you how are we going to dive into this topic today? So earlier we were chatting about this and you told me about how Hasselblad just released this X2D camera, which is 100 megapixels, medium format, has a terabyte of onboard storage, 16-bit native uh, bit depth, (laughs) the name of our show. Um, And that triggered this thought of that we've talked about before, which is like, what is the role of equipment and technology in making art? And it's easy to talk about this in photography, right? Because photography is nowadays basically fully digital. Right. And there's a huge swing. You know, everyone has a camera, so you already have, everyone has a phone, so you already have a, a free camera. You could go out and spend sub $1,000 on a really nice camera. You could buy a really nice Fuji camera used for probably hundreds of dollars at this point. Or you could go out and buy the new Hasselblad 100 megapixel medium format camera, a pair of lenses and a battery, and probably spend close to $20,000. So what do you need to make good art? Yeah. And why would anyone buy uh, $20,000 of camera gear when you have an, an AI phone camera with you at all times? Yeah. And I think there's maybe th- actually three places we can dig in. One is what is a great photograph? And another one is, if you already take great photographs, will better equipment with better specs make your photographs better? And the third one is what you just said, who's using this stuff? Right. There's obviously a demand for it. If Hasselblad is making it, somebody wants it. And Hasselblad and uh, who makes the who makes the the digital backs for medium format so there's phase one digital backs uh hasselblad also makes some for their other line the eight series of cameras which are you know one to 200 megapixel digital backs i think phase one has a 200 megapixel medium format back just to say these exist they're being made people are buying them and we can maybe dig into why that is sure but what makes a what makes a great photograph anyway i mean that's an interesting question right i think it's really in the eye of the beholder you know, if, if people like it, it's a great photograph and it doesn't really matter what it's made on. If, if your audience, if your consumers of your work like it, it's a great photograph. When does it make sense to spend money on equipment? Well, I guess there's, there's two thoughts here, right? There's a professional that might have an actual need or a requirement to spend money on equipment, whether it's a technical requirement where he can't accomplish the work with the gear that he has, where he has to spend money. 
or whether it is a requirement of your client that you produce images of a certain size or with certain gear even. That happens sometimes in fashion and commercial work where they require you to use uh, you know, specific gear. Then there's the other flip side as, as sort of like the hobbyist or the semi-pro, the guy who sells maybe a few photos a year or doesn't sell any. They're on a website, they're on SmugMug or Instagram. Um, you know, when does he need or she need gear? I think it's maybe more of what your your question is here. Is that is that true? Yeah, I don't know. I I think I think with such a spectrum of hardware that's out there. So I, I found um, I found this blog post on the phoblographer.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, the the what was the title? The title was Stop Pixel Peeping and Enjoy Your Images Stress Free. And this article was all about, hey, stop, stop overanalyzing the images that you're taking and stressing out about every tiny blemish or how sharp you think it is at 400% magnification or whatever. So I agree to that to some degree. It's a weird way of phrase, it, I suppose. But um, sure, like enjoy the gear you have. Get out there and shoot with what you have. But if you're at the limit to what you ha- to what you can produce with the gear that you have if you have the means to upgrade your gear uh should you strive to make better and better art if if you if, if you're a macro photographer if that is your love and you can upgrade your lens to be something bananas better and it greatly improves your work like i don't think you should be complacent and be like well my lens is not that sharp it's not that fast i can make okay macro photos and and just make okay macro photos for your whole life like i think you should strive to make better and better art, better and better photographs, the same way that you should never stop learning on on processing your photos, right? So many people get complacent. Well, I have a system that works. I can process photos really quickly. They look okay. Well, I I don't know about you, but I'm never trying to make just okay anything, right? I want to make the best possible thing I can make with my skills at the time, and I want to get better. So yeah, I agree that, you know, if you're not fully proficient in your gear, if you don't have the means or uh, yeah, keep shooting the gear that you have. But um, if your gear becomes a limitation, then that should be something you look at. You made a good point about post-processing there. And in the last episode, we talked about AI and computational photography and that stuff. But but even just not talking about that and just thinking about the Lightrooms, Capture Ones, Photoshops, Affinity Photos of the world, or on your phone, even uh, Snapseed, I really like. Um, there's a bunch out there. Sure. It begs the question, do you, do you need better hardware or do you need to watch some, tr- some Photoshop tutorials? I mean, that's a really individualized question, right? Or uh, it's a personal question. So for some people, uh, you know, their gear might be fine. They need help in Photoshop or, or other post-processing tools. And for some people, the gear might truly be the limit. I mean, there's a reason why there are still mirrorless cameras out there. There's a reason why there's a variety of lenses that have a variety of price points. Um, you know, there's lots of examples, right? If you're shooting sports and you have, uh, you know, an F4 200 millimeter lens and you're getting better and better at shooting sports, maybe you're shooting some minor league sports, maybe even some pro sports, you know, longer, faster glass is going to make your images better. It's just a fact, right? If you're trying to capture the batter hitting a ball, and your lens is only 200 and you're pretty far away, upgrading to a 400 millimeter lens is going to make your images better. Yeah, that seems completely true. But to pressure test that, I would suggest that better 
in sports photography is a definition that we're using for journalistic sports photography. Sure. The, the, the goal of that is to capture a moment in a visually legible way. It's, it's clear. You can see who it is. You can see what they're doing. You can see the moment of action. Perhaps it has some emotion to it in that sense. But we're not talking about like subjective, artistic interpretations of a baseball game. Sure. Um, although Jared from Frodo's Photo has some pretty artsy baseball photos. That's kind of a, a side tangent here. Um, okay. So stretch it out to uh, you like photographing wildlife. You like photographing birds specifically. And you have a 200 millimeter f5.6 lens, which is a perfectly fine lens, which can do perfectly nice things, but is not going to get you the artistic photos of birds that you see other places. And you're not going to be able to put your own spin on it because your lens is physically not going to be able to capture that. This all makes sense. So what equipment do you need to make great art? And that depends on what kind of art you're trying to make and whether you need to buy new equipment has a lot to do with what you're trying to do and you'll you'll know it if you see it. Yeah, and I think to to sort of maybe counter this or counter my own point here, I have an old Fuji camera that I think I bought used for like $300 that I've traveled with when I need like a super light uh, mirrorless camera and it's 12 megapixels and it makes amazing photographs. So of ocean scenes, of city scenes, the color is phenomenal. The kit lens is as sharp as most like pro in air quotes lenses. Uh, so I'm not saying that you can't make great work, but situationally, you might outgrow that camera. You might outgrow the lenses that you have. It depends on the art you want to make. Uh, I try to make really big photos pretty often. So 12 megapixels is a hindrance to what I'm trying to make. If I'm making a multi-row pano, uh, I can't start with 12 megapixels. It's not, it's just not enough. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I feel like I've walked a kind of a different path where over the years I've bought bigger and more expensive cameras and added more megapixels and longer lenses. And then at some point I got tired of carrying it all because it was so heavy and I sort of scaled down and started to go down this path of like smaller and smaller cameras and rangefinder lenses. And you could do a lot with both systems, right? It depends on what you're trying to do. Yeah, you're living my dream of not having 40 pounds of camera gear on your back whenever I go hiking. But, you know, it is uh, it is what it is for me, I guess. I'm such an extremist that I have two cameras. I have a Fuji X-T4 that I use to shoot the black and white and color stuff that I do. And I have a, a Sony that I converted to infrared. And I'm such an extremist, I don't even take them both. I choose which one I'm going to take because one camera is my limit. That's interesting. So I, I normally bring my whole bag full of all of my gear. Uh, oftentimes, because I'm going places where I'm not sure when I will get there again. Uh, you know, if you're in Hawaii at sunrise, um, you know, top of a volcano, how many cracks in your lifetime are you going to have at that? Once every three or four years, every 10 years, maybe once in a lifetime, right? So if I'm going to go hike out this ridgeline and set up for sunset, sunrise, sorry. Yeah, I want to have both my cameras or all three cameras and three tripods and really try to come away with an image. So moving along here, um, I think the gear you need is really dependent on your current skill level, on what you're trying to accomplish, how good you are already in post-processing. Uh, for a lot of people, there's things they can likely do for low cost or free that would make them better photographers. And for some people, you know, they should look at their gear and say, is this my limit? And is this where I should invest? If it's your hobby, if it's what you enjoy, 
then uh, you know maybe it's worth looking at at putting in some some extra funds towards that. Yeah, let's let's talk about. I forgot to include in our agenda Peter McKinnon's Leica. Oh, the Q two. Uh, the the reason that I mention it is I think I think it's related. Is one reason to seek new equipment is you need a capability that you don't currently have. I actually think like your macro example is a good one. I think uh, your wildlife example is a good one. Peter's reason that he laid out in the video that I'll link in the show notes was he was bored like shooting the same kit. Maybe bored is an extreme term. He was in a creative rut because he's shot the same kit for, I don't know, decades. And so he goes out and he buys this Leica. And it's a great video. It's well-produced. It's an interesting topic. Certainly, it seemed to unlock something for him. And I felt this way, too, even just switching from Sony to Fuji, which is kind of a sidestep in terms of capabilities, is more fun. Like the camera's laid out differently. It's a new experience. It changes the way you look at things. So maybe that's a reason. And maybe I'm interested to hear how you feel about that. And you're like a Q2. Did it unlock something creatively for you? Yeah. So first, be very clear. I bought mine before Peter bought his. So I am not a follower of Peter's in any way in this regard. I had mine first. Um, you can certainly accomplish. You're right. It unlocks something for me. And you can accomplish it for a much more reasonable price. But I like going to extremes. So I went to extremes. Um, the fixed focal length, the the lens, the compression in the lens based on how many elements there are and the sensor gives you a, a very different look. And it's very limiting in a lot of ways. And it's super fun to go out in the world with this sort of very limiting kit where you can't change the focal length. Um, you can't do a lot of things other cameras can do and try to make compelling work. And, and maybe a little bit like Peter, like I've had big SLRs and uh, big mirrorless cameras and Fuji mirrorless cameras for a long time. And, you know, I'm shooting the same kind of multi-row panos, the same blended, uh, blended sunrises and sunsets. And I want something that I could, that's light that I could carry around with me and, and make some compelling work. I was, I was just out in San Francisco and I made some images of, of the bridge at night, Golden Gate Bridge, um, that are very different from my normal style. And I think very compelling in a lot of ways. And, you know, I could have accomplished this for a quarter of the price going and buying a Fuji with a single lens, but uh, I'm a little bit insane and, and chose the Leica route. Uh, and it's been really fun for me. And I think, I don't know, part of photography is just having fun with it, right? And if, if buying the Leica, you know, adds to your enjoyment and adds to your creativity, like, great. If, um, you know, buying the Fuji and or converting your Sony to an IR camera gives you enjoyment, like, great. Like, there's nothing wrong with that inherently, right? I, some people are like hyper focused on gear and maybe that's a mistake. But if these things give you enjoyment in life and, and allow you to express your creativity, you know, I'm all for it. Yeah, I agree with that philosophically. And I think you and I talked about this offline. I had more of a negative reaction to Peter's video, but I think what I was reacting to wasn't the point that he was trying to make, which is changing changing his hardware unlocked his creativity, which is certainly true and has happened to me, was I felt like it was presented in more of like a general case kind of a way by saying, hey, look, I bought this $6,000 camera and it changed the way I look at things. The comments of that video on YouTube are full of people giving examples of less expensive cameras they bought that did the same thing for them. 
And maybe the moral of the story is a change can be good. Limitation definitely fuels creativity. And there are there are ways to do that at every price point. There are. For me, I've never owned the Lika camera before. Never had a rangefinder back in the day. Never any of the M series cameras, right? And there's like a mystique about Lika. You know, it's this German, you know, single aluminum body camera that has a very different sensor. And I, I think Peter probably fell victim to this a little bit too, right? Where it's just, it's something new, something different that you haven't used before. And there's a sort of an awe or mystery appeal to it. Um, creatively though, like walking around a city, I probably could have gotten the same results um, having one of the small Fuji cameras and a, uh, you know, a 30 millimeter lens just attached to it. Let's briefly touch on gear acquisition syndrome. Sure. Which I, I think that has been a term used colloquially in photography for a long time. Just today, I came across it again in that same faux blogger post. Gear acquisition syndrome is the idea of acquiring gear for the sake of acquiring gear. Oh, boy. Okay. And maybe that sounds like, I, I think it sounds to me like something that somebody like Peter McKinnon might uh, do accidentally because his he has a successful career based around having this gear and so and people even send him free gear so in some cases it's like not even a choice <laughs> the free stuff shows up and his door he's also in a, a weird position where he could have any gear he wants at any point in time right you want to switch to the Hasselblad camera sure you want to do eight series Hasselblad right fine you want to shoot 200 uh, megapixel digital Mamiya back like or phase one back like no problem uh so he has like this onslaught it actually might be even more of a problem for him in some ways because you know there's no barrier for him acquiring any piece of kit but to your point previously which i believe you're correct about if peter wants to buy a full kit of by every camera maker on earth that's fine he can he can do that like sure nobody's saying nobody's saying he can't or shouldn't but rather, the the danger of gear acquisition syndrome is believing that that gear will solve all of the problems that may be facing you creatively, and it might short term. But I think it's I think it's um, I think it's wrong to believe that that's where you should start. Does that make sense? It does, and it ties back to our previous point. You know, if you're acquiring lenses or cameras just for the sake of doing it, you know that really isn't going to help you. But if you took an honest look and said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm post-processing my image as best as I can. Um, there's a, there's a lack of something and I can solve it with this piece of hardware. It makes sense. So it really depends on how you approach acquisitions of gear. You know, if you're just constantly buying things just for the sake of buying them or because you think it will help, but you're not improving anything else, then you're giving people a lot of, you're giving manufacturers a lot of money, but you're not going to improve any of your own, uh, your own art. Yeah. Let me give the, I want to give this example that might help our listeners open their minds to what this really means from the perspective of a painter. And I had to just jump on uh, blick.com and look up the single most expensive oil painting brush that you could buy on their website, which is made with a material, a bristle material called Kalinsky Sable, uh, which is, um, I think it's like marmot hair or ferret hair it's it's natural and it's natural animal hair and this paintbrush it's like 
a number six long handle oil paintbrush. It's you would not look at it and think that it was something special. It's one hundred and fifty dollars. And is this like how long will one of these paintbrushes last? Is it something that will last for years, or if you paint consistently, does it actually go bad at some point? That's a great question. I'm not a painter, so I don't feel equipped to answer that definitively, but I would venture a guess that they would last years if if well taken care of. But that, that, that having been said, the question to be asking yourself is, will that brush make your painting better? And my answer is, I think the chances are very good that it's easier to paint a bad painting with a $150 brush than it is to paint a great painting with a $6 brush. I mean, I'm just glancing over this now. There are brushes that cost literally $1 to $2, lots in the $6 to $10 range. So this is a large order of magnitude more expensive than other paintbrushes. I think what's interesting is paintbrushes and cameras probably have a lot in common with how a $1 or $2 brush is probably a pretty bad paintbrush. But a okay. $5 or $6 brush might be a, a quite nice paintbrush that you could really get a lot of usage out of. A $10 or $15 brush is close to the most expensive, nicest brush that an amateur painter will ever have a need to use, I would think, for oil or acrylic. Because they will see, they will see no difference between a $15 brush and a $150 brush? Likely they would see no difference. Or their technique would not be limited by the difference between those brushes. But I think a photographer would see a difference between a 2.8 400mm telephoto lens and a 200mm f5.6 lens or a 300mm f5.6 lens. It, it takes far less skill to show the difference, I think is what I'm trying to say, right? I'm going to push my point a little further. I think that you could hold a $150 Kalinske Sable paintbrush and in your other hand hold a $10 synthetic bristle brush. And I think you could really tell the difference. I think you could touch it and you could say, I absolutely can tell the difference. Does that mean your paintings are better? Like, just because you have long, clear glass doesn't mean you're creating no, sorry, compelling I think I images missed my, with it. I don't think I, I, I phrased my response correctly. So... um. Painting is like this this crazy skill that I know very little about that would seem very hard to run out of like the $15 paintbrush is no longer good enough, right? Agreed that where you will actually see a benefit from a one to $150 paintbrush, right? Like you have to be an amazing painter to make use of that paintbrush where the paintbrush itself is limiting you, right? Where you can actually make better art, assuming you can at all, with the $150 versus the $15 paintbrush. Um I think of photography, like, yes, like there's a point where you would make the same photos, but it, it's much less of a gap. And if you gave someone who was a fairly good photographer a much better lens, he might make substantially better work. I disagree. You disagree that if you, if you have a guy who makes decent photos of birds with, you know, a 70 to 300 millimeter, you know, F 6.3 at the far end lens if you gave him like a professional 2.8 telephoto lens he wouldn't make better photos of birds it would definitely be objectively a closer photo of a bird the bird would be larger in the frame and the bokeh would be very pretty it would be the same picture that anybody with that equipment could make uh there are a bunch of people out there who might photograph birds who might disagree with us but yeah sure yes those people know what they're doing 
and it's not the equipment that makes that image possible. What, what separates the quality or the artistic integrity of two telephoto photos of birds at f2.8? It's the, it's the scene around them, right? Are they hovering over a misty lake in the early morning light, right? But like, okay. I, I'm just saying, I think objectively, the better glass will help the average to good photographer where the $150 paintbrush largely won't help the average to good painter. The threshold is different. I, I'll agree with that. The, the threshold of where the equipment starts to add some value is maybe a little bit lower in photography like it adds a capability but until you've painted for a year with a synthetic bristle brush it would be hard to know what it would feel like to switch to a natural bristle brush and i haven't personally done that so i can't even comment right i was going to ask i was saying before like hey listen if you have the means and you enjoy shooting with crazy camera gear if you want to go blow 20 grand on Hasselblad gear like like i'm I'm all for it right if that's what you enjoy in life then go do it um and and maybe what's the difference would you notice a difference painting with a couple hundred and fifty dollar brushes versus, say, thirty dollar brushes? Like, if you're actually on the strokes on the canvas, would you notice a difference while you were doing it? I want to quote a person named Jim Powers who commented on the Peter McKinnon like a Q2 video. He said, "The more you pay for a camera, the better the images look to you." I've owned Leicas and Hasselblads, but images hanging on the wall were indistinguishable from my Nikons or Mamiya's. Never stopped me from try- trying to buy talent, though. The magic dust isn't in the camera. That's a little bit of an extreme take. There are differences that exist, and I don't want to belabor that point. But I, I, I do believe that if you spend a bunch of money on a thing, you will perceive its value more than anyone else around you will. And if that makes you happy then you should assuming you have the means to do it and you're not like stretching all of your finances just to go get some perceived value that you don't actually have and i hate to caveat that but in our world we we know this happens to people right within the boundaries of of reasonable uh financial (laughs) responsibility right Uh, i can't make a rent this month but man this new hasselblad lens looks phenomenal who's buying these hasselblad x2ds chris so if it was a Leica, I would I would use uh, Jared's uh, from Frodo's photo example and say uh, doctors and lawyers who want to be photographers. Hasselblad's a little different. Um, they still own a lot of the high end fashion portrait photography world. So if you go on YouTube and look at some of these guys who are making really cool commercial high end fashion photos who shoot for the fashion houses in Europe, um, they're almost exclusively still shooting with Hasselblad. Um, there are other guys that do uh, high-end architectural work, um, you know, indoor-outdoor architectural photography, um, who are pretty big Hasselblad users. Um, you'll find the occasional like wedding photographer who who still likes Hasselblad and uses Hasselblad. Um, and I meet guys out in the parks once in a while who have uh, Hasselblads who take you know landscape nature photos with Hasselblad. So um, seemingly a pretty big cross section. As the biggest use case is probably in in high-end studio work, like for the real fashion houses. Um, but a lot of real working pros and then amateurs who have the means to spend, you know, upwards of $10,000 on a camera before you even look at the lenses, which are substantially expensive. So if we just set aside for a second the the the, the obvious, the noticeable differences in the Hasselblad color science and software and sensor technology 
that makes their images look different. If we're if we're talking about the X2D, which is a 100 megapixel medium format, it's medium, right? Medium format. Medium format. It is. And their their previous one was like X1D or something. The, there's an X1D and X1D2, and this is the X2D. The first ones were both 50 megapixels. The first one, the X1D, was it was like a beta camera. Like it works, it's slow. Uh, some software releases made it a little better. The X2D was sort of like the improvements on fixing all the things that the original one had. I think what interests me here, if we're talking about making art, the difference between two cameras that are, let's call them effectively the same, and we we presume that software updates can fix whatever deficiencies are there in previous models over time. The difference is 50 megapixels or 100 megapixels. And to my mind, at this point of like 50 megapixels and up, the only reason to go higher is to print bigger. Sure. I mean, you could crop more. Sure, that's true. But that seems like a pretty high price point to not learn how to frame your image the way you wanted to in the first place. Like it's a Just big buy premium a longer lens, right? Sure. It's a big premium versus if you want to print big, you need more pixels. Full stop. Yeah. Print big uh, licensing flexibility down the road, mostly for prints, but, you know, licensing, um, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I just had someone, it's funny, it's funny you say this. I had someone reach out to me today who wants a, uh, one of my photos and they want it to be 94 inches long on the long side. Um, and I can eke it out at basically 300 TPI. So I can provide him a incredibly high res TIFF that he can print with. So if you're, if you're making mammoth prints. This raises further questions that we should talk about in, in a future episode. I think what's interesting to me is um, a, a listener not as conversant with the photography world and megapixel measurements might think, well, 100 megapixels, that means like we could go to billboard size. Obviously, photographs have appeared on billboards for some years. The truth is, if you're looking at it from that far away, it doesn't need to be that high resolution. You, you really need 100 megapixels for something that's big and close. Right. So an example of that is I licensed one of my photos to a hospital, I think a children's hospital, actually, and they wrapped a wall with it. So from 50 feet away, it looks amazing. But if you walk up to it or you're walking like by it across from it, it looks great. If you walk up to a billboard close up, the pixels are going to be three inches in diameter. Yeah. It's going to be nonsense yeah. to anything under, you know, 15 or 20 feet. But my but my crazy large photo looks fine from, you know, a foot away. So I feel like I feel like we can wrap this episode and, and bring it back to the answer to the original question. What equipment do you need to make great art? And I think the answer that we're coming to is whatever makes you happy to use and is the minimum that allows you to achieve what you want to achieve. I, I would agree with that. And, and when your skills outpace your gear, it's worthwhile to upgrade. So the episode should be called, What Equipment Do You Need to Make Great Art? Or How to Stop Worrying and Do More Photoshop Tutorials Until You Reach the, the Limits of Your of your Skill and then, then Think About Buying Equipment. I love it. Great way to end. <laughs> All right. It's good talking to you, Chris. Bye.